If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, <clears throat> faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the glorious work of your wisdom and power in the work of redemption, of redeeming a people for yourself from every tribe and tongue, for redeeming us and bringing us into a right relationship with you through the washing away of our sin, through the blood of your Son on the cross, that through his blood your Son has purchased a church as the bride, as his bride. And he is at work through his Holy Spirit to purify and sanctify this church on earth until it will be presented in glory without spot or blemish. Lord, thank you that you have given structures within the church for its growth and godliness, for its upbuilding, and for its sustaining and growing the believers in the body. Lord, we have looked already at governance and the congregation's authority that you have given in key matters. And now, Lord, we want to open up your word and see what you have to say about leaders. Lord, leadership in the church is something that is so crucial. Give us the mind of Christ. Help us to understand, Lord, the high calling and the noble task that you have uh, established. May our thinking be biblical. May our thinking be framed by the word of God. And Lord, as we hear from your word, I ask that you may, by your Holy Spirit, be at work in gifting and equipping even those in this body to raise them up and be useful for you, for your glory in, in serving and shepherding this church. 
Lord, we give you uh, praise for what you are doing in this church. And we ask that as we examine your word today, we may see areas where we can give thanks to you. And we may also see areas where we can grow with repentance so that you may be glorified. Empower me by your spirit to proclaim your word to your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is the second part of this sermon on church governance. And last week we looked at specifically the governance side of the church. And we talked about the authority of the congregation as they assemble within a local body to be the final arbiter, the final judge on earth in the key matters of doctrine, membership, selecting leaders, and discipline within the church. And that this is not an authority given to any one person. It's not an authority given to a body of, of some ex extra church body. It's not given to a synod or to a session or to a council, but we made the argument that this is an authority that's entrusted to the believers assembled in a local congregation. And if you recall, we talked about, at the very beginning of the sermon last week, the distinction between governance and leadership. Governance, as we said, is, is that which possesses authoritative power to regulate and to control those being governed. That's governance. Well, leadership involves the oversight, the guidance, the direction of those being led. And we often use those words, governance and, and leadership, interchangeably. We, we even call our prime minister the, 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 and, and his party the government. But, but formally speaking, they're the leadership because they provide leadership uh, as they direct, make decisions, and guide the governance of the, the nation, whereas it's the Queen of England, or, or specifically her delegate, the Governor General, who function as the seat of authoritative power, giving authorization to Parliament to govern and to make decisions. So even as I use those words, we, we so often interchange them, but it's, the distinction is important. So people who, who, who may not quite get that illustration, I have another one for you. Think about a professional sports team. In a sports team, who's the person who calls the shots on the field? Who decides what plays to make, what players to put on, what players to put on the bench, what rookies to call up, when to call a timeout, and so forth? Who is the one that's making those decisions? It's the coach, right? The coach. The coach is there. So he exercises leadership over the team. He's responsible for making the team win. So to do that, he has to make decisions, and he gets to know the players, he knows what each player's skills are, what their strengths are. He knows how to combine the players in the right way so that every line can be as strong as it can be. He shores up the weaknesses of the players. He trains the players to improve on their skill. That's the coach. He's the leader. He's making those decisions to help the team win. In contrast, who calls the big shots for the team? the owner, right? So if the team fails to make the playoffs, the owner is the one that decides who's going to get axed. He can decide within the authority of, of the whole team structure the large decisions that have to be made. So a smart owner will let the coach lead and will trust the coach will do what's best for the team, but ultimately it's the owner that has the final say. So this isn't a perfect illustration, but it does show the distinction between the authority to lead and the authority to govern. 
And there are lots of other areas in life where this distinction comes up. And not the least of these is the church, where the authority to lead is given to a plurality of qualified elders. And ultimate authority to govern in these key matters of doctrine and selecting leaders and discipline and membership is entrusted to the whole assembled local congregation. And as we said last week, this structure of church, which, which we are convinced is scriptural, is referred to as elder-led congregationalism. And essentially, it states that the final authority, the final court of appeal on these key matters is the believers. Christ has purchased a church with his blood, and he has empowered them with his Holy Spirit and his word to know as a whole what ought to be believed and what ought to be done to glorify God within the body. At the same time, God has given authority to leaders to exercise oversight over the flock. So the congregation's authority isn't over everything, but it's focused on these key matters, on doctrine, on, on selecting leaders, on admitting new members, and on disciplining out those who prove to have a false confession. So this means that the local assembly is, is charged with preserving the purity of the church. They're charged with recognizing those whom the Holy Spirit has gifted to lead, calling them and then submitting to them. And, and the local church has final authority to welcome true gospel authorities into membership and discipline false gospel professors out of membership. And, and as we looked at last week, we backed this conviction up with passages from Matthew 18 and Galatians 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and, and other places. So th this is our conviction, elder-led congregational church government. And ultimately, we note that the congregation's authority is rooted in the special presence of Christ in his people as he dwells with them through his spirit and through his word. So if we step back and we think about, well, what kind of government does the church have? On one hand, we could say, well, it's a monarchy. It's a monarchy with one king, the Lord Jesus. Passages like Colossians 1.18 that tell us that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So the church is like a monarchy. Christ is king. But in another sense, the church is like a democracy. The believers in the congregation as a whole, the people as a whole, have been entrusted with this earthly authority to judge in these key matters. But in a third sense, the church is like an aristocracy where a few lead the whole because within the church, the Lord has instituted officers to exercise leadership over the whole congregation. And, and this brings us to that elder part in elder-led congregationalism. And that's what we're going to focus on today, elder leadership. How many of you had to read um, the William Golding's book, Lord of the Flies, when you were in school? Okay, a few. So you know Lord of the Flies. In that story, a plane crash lands on a deserted island and a large group of boys are left on the island with no adults. There's no adult leadership at all. The boys try to congregate and, and they try to establish a semi-formal society and they have a set of rules by which they're going to decide who gets to speak. Um, there's this big conch cell, shell and whoever holds the conch cell, shell gets to speak. 
But, but eventually, that social construct completely breaks down as the book unfolds. The boys form factions. They, they fall prey to an irrational fear of a mythical beast that they imagine to be on the island. Eventually, the boys murderously turn on each other and the whole island turns into chaos. This story is an allegory of what happens in any society when it tries to organize itself without mature, authoritative leadership. It's the same principle as in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus himself quoted this verse to predict what would happen to his disciples after he was arrested and put on trial, how they would fall prey to fear and be scattered because the shepherd uh, was not there to watch over them. The Lord does not intend for his church to scatter, but to be gathered as the flock of God under the loving hand of its shepherd. And the Bible reveals that God himself is our shepherd. Uh, we, we all know the familiar word in, in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Ezekiel 34, God says of his people, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. The Lord's love for his people as a shepherd is, is what led Christ in John 10 to say of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as my father knows me and I know my father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Shepherd is really the best picture to capture the care, the love, the individual knowledge and attention and protecting hand of God for his people. And this is so clearly illustrated in the life of Jesus as the good shepherd. He laid down his life for his sheep as he died on the cross for their sin. He bore the sins of his people in his body and suffered the penalty for our sin and then rose to life. And he did this for his sheep. This is, this is the good news of, this is the good news of the gospel that the good shepherd has purchased the flock of God, redeeming them with his blood, saving them from the wrath to come and gathering them as God's people, as God's flock. We are Jesus' sheep if his blood has washed away our sins, if we have turned away from our sin and from our own deeds for righteousness as a means of salvation and then embrace Christ with repentance and faith. This is the starting point to think about leadership. It's the Christ's leadership. Christ's purchasing of his church with his blood. And so if we are those who have put our faith in Christ, we belong to him and he is our shepherd and he shepherds us through the shepherds that he gives to us in the church. But my friend, if you have not turned to Christ in repentance, then in that sense, Christ is not your shepherd and you are not being under the shepherding hand and care of God, but rather can expect God's wrath and displeasure because of your sin. May today be your day of salvation. May the good shepherd who laid his life down for his sheep grant mercy to you in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. If you repent of your sin and put your faith in him, he will usher you 
as he has ushered all of his people into the flock of God. So Jesus' love and concern for his sheep uh, didn't stop there. He didn't just lay down his life for his sheep, but he has also gathered his sheep into churches and has now, even after ascending into heaven, care for his flock. And so out of love for his flock, the good shepherd has given men, godly men, as under-shepherds to take care of that flock that he purchased with his blood. And in the New Testament, these under-shepherds are called by various titles. Pastors, they're called, literally, which means shepherds. If you speak Spanish, pastor means shepherd. Overseers and elders. Th those are the three most common words. Now, uh, although we use that word elder, it's important for us to define it biblically because elders has all different meanings in our contemporary culture. Eldership is not a board of, of temporary lay officials. It's not a, a group of influential people in the community. It's not a council of policymakers. It's not a, a group of professional administrators. It's not a group of advisors to the pastor. It's not a group of fundraisers. Biblically speaking, we can define eldership as this. A plurality of qualified men that jointly pastor a local church through teaching, authoritative oversight, servant leadership, and godly example. I want to repeat that again. Eldership, biblically, is a plurality of spiritually qualified men that jointly pastor a local church through teaching, authoritative oversight, servant leadership, and godly example. So for the rest, most of the rest of the sermon, we're going to go through that statement and I'll unpack each part to try to get a picture of what the Bible teaches on eldership. So first of all, elders are pastors. One of the most vivid pictures of a pastor shepherding a church is, is in Acts 20, which Luke read for us earlier. Here, Paul gathers the church from the, from the elders of the church in, in Ephesus. So these Ephesian elders, they're gathered with Paul. Paul is on the way to Jerusalem. He knew that imprisonment, imprisonment awaited him, and this would be the last time that he would see these elders. And, and these were men that he had labored with for three years and he urges them to watch over the flock as shepherds. And he reminds them of his own example of how he shepherded the church while he was there. So we read those verses before. Think about what, what, we, what he said. Paul labored night and day for that church. He taught in public. He taught from house to house. He did not withhold from anyone the full counsel of God, testifying to everyone of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shrunk from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. And so in turn, he then urges the elders to follow, take up his mantle, take up this responsibility of shepherding the church. And so in verse 28, he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul urges these men, these elders of the church, to watch themselves and to watch the whole flock, to care for the flock of God. He reminds them of the value of God's church. It is so valuable because it was purchased with the blood of Christ. And then he calls those elders to watch out for wolves who will come in 
and try to devour the flock. So these elders are called to lead the church through their godly example, just as Paul had set the example. So if we think about what are the things that a shepherd must do in Acts 20, we, we can see very clearly. First, a shepherd must feed the church. They must feed the church with the word of God, just as Paul had fed the Ephesian church night and day in public and private and with tears. They must lead the church as Paul did, over exercising oversight. They must protect the church from false teachers who will come in and lead the people astray. Feeding, leading, protecting. These are the main jobs of a shepherd. A shepherd for sheep and a shepherd for souls. And this is the main job for elders. In Peter, Peter's instruction in 1 Peter 5, he, he repeats the same instructions to the elders of the church where he says, so I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. And that's an important verse, and it's important for elders to remember. They're not above the flock. They're among the flock. They're not above the people, but among the people. And they are to feed them with the word of God, to lead them with oversight, to care for, and to protect them as they are precious to Christ. Well, what are the instruments that the shepherd uses to exercise this shepherding? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul told Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So this reinforces that elders shepherd the church through teaching. The instrument that they use to shepherd the flock is the word of God. It's not cultural references or fads or management practices or man's ideas or psychology, but they take what the chief shepherd has given them the scriptures and feed the people of God with those scriptures. Secondly, elders are those who exercise authoritative oversight. The word that's used here is overseer. Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5, all call elders overseers overseers of the church. That means they're responsible for the flock, for guarding them against false doctrine and refuting error. They are stewards of God's household. If you think about a big, big house, right? It needs managers. It needs people who are responsible for the practical upkeep um, in, in, in like a palace or something like that. Elders have a similar kind of idea. They are responsible for the goings-on of God's household. They are responsible in decision-making, in leadership, in guidance, guiding the church so that it remains godly, and equipping the church so that it may be built up in love. As overseers, elders have been given authority. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. So although we talked about the church's authority, Last week, we also must recognize that elders have authority. They have a different kind of authority. They have an authority to lead, and their authority is based on the word of God. So Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. 
And it's helpful, as John showed the kids, to understand the church's authority and the elders' authority to use the analogy of, of a car. In a car, the steering wheel is what guides the car. But when it gets into a bad situation, you press the brake. And if it gets really bad, you pull the emergency brake. That's how the church is supposed to work. The, the, the elders are to exercise authoritative oversight. They're the steering wheel. Their authority is the steering wheel where they lead the church according to God's word to help the church to, to, to follow God's guidance, God's direction to build itself up in holiness. But if the steering wheel is taking the church somewhere where the Bible does not allow the church to go, then the congregation has to exercise its authority and pull the emergency brake in order to preserve the purity and the holiness of the church. So that's why uh, there seems to be a bit of a, a tension between the congregational authority and the elders' authority. And that's why the teachers, the, the, the scripture teaches us, obey your leaders and submit to them. Our culture despises authority. It chafes against it. Submission um, is a four-letter word in our culture. But God has given elders to the church and has invested the, in them authority to exercise oversight over the church. And they have authority to command things. But their authority is limited to what the scripture says. They can't command well, what kind of car you should buy or what kind of, you know, those kinds of things that are outside of scripture. They can't bind your conscience. They themselves are not issuing the commands. They are relaying the commands of God to God uh, to God's people from God in the Bible. That's the domain of the elders' authoritative oversight. Thirdly, elders are servant leaders. Although elders have authority, they are not to be authoritarian. They are to lead like Jesus, who is gentle and humble in heart. Elders are to be the servant of all, for even Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. In 1 Peter 5, verse 3, Peter warns elders not to be dictators, not to be self-serving tyrants or autocrats, but to pattern the humility, the servanthood, and Christ-like love that should characterize the whole assembly of the church. And as servant leaders, the elders' role is not primarily to do the work, but primarily to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says that Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So if we borrow from our sports analogy, we said that the elders are like the coach. They're not the players. And we're not the spectators. We're the players. And the coach's job is to teach us how to read the pitches, how to swing the bat, how to run around the bases, how to field the ball. They teach us all those things so that we can play the game. In, in the church, the pastors model godly example. They model how to study God's word, how to pray, how to read God's word, how to encourage, admonish, build one another up in Christ so that we may be equipped in order to carry out the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Fourthly, elders are spiritually qualified men who set an example. And we read the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 before we started this sermon. Let's look again at 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. It says, This saying is trustworthy, 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. As we look at these qualifications, broadly, they are spiritual qualifications. They deal with character, reputation, and they include the ability to teach God's word. An elder must be above reproach, meaning that over time, the demeanor and the behavior of the man garners respect and admiration from others. He lives a life worthy of the calling of God, blameless in his outward character and upright in his dealings with people. Above reproach is, is not, um, doesn't mean that an elder is sin sinless, it's perfect. But above reproach is an omnibus term, like an umbrella word, for a life that is characterized by godliness. And then Paul fills out the details with the qualifications that follow. The, the next qualification is the husband of one wife, meaning that an elder exemplifies sexual and moral purity and is faithful and committed to his wife. He prizes his wife above all others. He directs his romantic affections only to her, loving her as Christ loves the church, washing her with the water of God's word, and in all things aiming to present her to God in holiness. In a world that is awash with marital unfaithfulness and pervasive sexual immorality, the church needs to present a gospel-centered, God-ordained alternative. And the responsibility on elders is high to bear the standard for holiness and goodness of biblical marriage. The next qualification is sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. And these are really closely linked together. To be sober-minded is to be free from the influence of passion or lust or emotion. A sober-minded man is, is one who's in control, not, con not controlled by other things, substances or power or lust or anything else, not drunk, but in control of his own desires, feelings, and attitudes. And self-controlled means that the elder bridles, bridles his inner life and his outer life in a manner that pleases God. He is not rash. He is not unthinking. He is discreet and wise. He keeps his emotions and his anger under control. Where soberness and self-control reign, such a man will be respectable. And the next qualification is hospitable. And literally, this means love for strangers. Love of strangers. To be hospitable is to express love in a tangible way, in a practical way. And elders are called to be exemplary, to set the example in this regard. Hospitality shows the love of Christ, and especially to those outside the church, it is an opportunity for evangelism. It provides opportunities for discipleship and for fellowship. It allows leaders to open up their family life and, and their home life to the inspection of others so that they are um, open to the church. 
to, for all to see. One pastor has said, hardly anything is more characteristic of Christian love than hospitality. Through hospitality, we share the things that we value most. Family, home, money, food, privacy, and time. In other words, we share our lives. The church should be filled with people who love like this. And elders are the ones to set the example for all. I am filled with thanks and praise to God that this church is that. And may we be all the more. Next, able to teach. Primarily, elders shepherd the church through teaching. Therefore, as shepherds, they need to be able to teach the word of God to the flock of God. And now, able to teach doesn't mean that all elders will be equally gifted in this regard. One of the elders may be especially gifted in preaching and teaching. Such a one could be paid so that he devotes his full time to shepherding the church. And so, although there may be variations in the gifting, levels of gifting, but all elders are called to be teachers of the word of God as they shepherd. So these qualifications have stated positively what an elder must be. Then we look in 1 Timothy 3, we see the qualifications that an elder must not be. He must not be a drunkard. He must not be violent, quarrelsome, or a lover of money. The prior qualifications, if they were absent, would disqualify the man. These ones, if they're present, would disqualify the man. Rather than being a drunkard, the elder must, the elder must be sober-minded. Rather than being violent, he must be self-controlled. Rather than being quarrelsome, he must be patient, gentle, and loving. And rather than loving money, the elder must be generous, practicing hospitality, and finding delight in greater things, in Christ, who is the greatest of all, and in caring for the church of Christ. Next, elders must be leaders at home. Elders demonstrate their ability to lead the household of God in the way that they lead their own households. The attentiveness, the leadership, the patience, the persistence, the nurturing required to shepherd a family should be present and, and should give us uh, an idea for the qualification to shepherd the church. They must be mature, not a recent convert, or else they may be, become puffed up with conceit. And finally, they need to have a good reputation with those outside the church. The qualifications for elders are repeated and expounded on in other passages like Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 5. But one of the things that's important to note is that, um, except perhaps for the able to teach, all those qualifications are just attributes of Christian character. These are things that we all should be striving towards and seeking to grow in. So, uh, and this emphasizes again that there, there is no clerical community in the church. This is a non-clerical community. Elders are not a special priesthood class above the, the hoi polloi of the common, the common churchgoer. That's not the way that God has set it out. God has set it out that we have elders who are brothers and they're setting the example in the way that we must follow. And we're looking at them to learn from their example. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy to set an example for the believers. And in other places in the scripture, it tells us to consider our leaders and their way of life and imitate their faith. Um, 
even myself, I found that it is one thing to be able to explain the word, and it's another thing to be able to live the word out. A pastor's life is to be vocal. Sermons must be lived as well as preached. And, and so these qualifications for elders are, are, are to show that they're leading the flock in the way that Christ would have the whole church to go. We are a royal priesthood of believers. Elders are brothers in Christ, setting Christ-like examples in their faith, in their conduct, in their devotion, and in their purity. And even as their evidence, um, as their weaknesses become evident, elders set an example in their repentance. Finally, despite the egalitarian movement and, and the feminist movement of our day, elders are men. We as a church believe that the scripture teaches clearly men's and women's roles in the family and in the church. Their roles are complementary, that God has made men and women equal as co-heirs of grace and has given them gifts and roles that are complementary to each other and provide a picture for the gospel. Just as different parts of an engine accomplish different tasks so that the car runs smoothly, so God has given men and women different ways in which they can serve God and honor God within the church and also within the home. As husbands are given Christ-like leadership in the home and, and are commanded to demonstrate Christ-like love and care in the family, so too are, are, are elders, men in the church, given leadership in the church who love the church, serve the church sacrificially, examples for the church, not lording over the flock, but exhibiting the love and care of Christ for his bride. Fifthly, elders are properly a plurality. Church leadership should not be a one-man show. God designed it to be shared by a plurality of elders. And the evidence for this in Scripture is, is, is huge. In, in James 5, James calls for the elders, and, and the word there is plural, to pray for the sick. In Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas go to every church that they had been on their missionary journey, and they appoint elders, plural, in every church. In Acts 20, which we just looked at, the uh, gathered Ephesian elders are plural. In Philippians 1, 1, Paul greets all the saints with the overseers, plural. Of the 18 passages in the New Testament concerning church leadership, 15 of 18 speak of plural leaders, and of those, seven refer to plural leaders in a single congregation. So we believe that the, church, the, the scripture is clear. Eldership properly is a plurality. Now some say, well, plural leadership just puts too many cooks in the kitchen. Nothing will ever get done. They'll just you know, be in committee all the time. But, but in reality... Shared leadership safeguards against pride, balances out people's weaknesses of the different elders, it lightens the load, and it provides accountability. But um, while we are convinced that biblically eldership is properly a plurality of men, in God's providence right now our church only has one, um, our, our pastor John. However, it's our strong desire and prayer that God may raise up more qualified men who aspire to that noble office. And we're working hard to get there. May we all be in much prayer that God may raise up and equip men from our number to be shepherds for the flock. Um, myself, I'm, I'm working towards the qualifications uh, that we just went through. And in the meantime, helping John bear the burden as I pray with him 
as we are accountable to one another, and as we discuss issues in the church as need be. But beyond that, John also has accountability with elders from other churches, um, including Bruce Ray from Juanita Baptist or Juanita Community Church um, in Kirkland in Washington, and and other pastors in the ministerial and 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 other elders as well. So to summarize, the New Testament indicates that leadership in the church is entrusted to elders. They are under shepherds who lead and oversee the church on Christ's behalf. Biblical eldership is a plurality of spiritually qualified men that jointly pastor a local church through teaching, authoritative oversight, servant leadership, and godly example. So that's what elders are. Now what do we, what do, we do as a congregation? How do we respond to them as they lead the church? For this, let's look at Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 7 and 17 are two verses that guide us in our response to the elders. It's, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So these verses call us, and others like them, call us to remember the teaching of our elders, to pay heed to what they teach us, and to imitate their faith. And secondly, these verses call us to obey them and submit to them, for they are watching over our souls, and they must give an account to God. So, as we listen to our elder, our brother, John's teaching, we are to follow his example, learn from him, obey him, and submit to him. And we live in an age where hardly anyone is shown honor. People make a living off of dishonoring those whom God commands them to honor. But God calls us to honor those who labor among us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. God calls us to imitate their faith. How do you view those whom God has put in leadership over your soul? Do you view our pastor with honor? Do you consider ways in which you can imitate his faith? John Owen wrote in a little booklet on how the congregation's duties and responsibilities are to their pastor that a pastor's life is a means of grace provided by God as a relief for his people when under temptation and an encouragement to holiness, zeal, meekness, and self-denial. Do you see those things evident in our brother and try to follow his example? Do you look for those areas of strength in John and try to conscientiously follow in the path that he's going as he tries to follow Christ? On the other hand, when weaknesses come evident, which are real and and exposed by many temptations and because he's opposed by many adversaries, how do we respond to those? Do we cover over them with love? Do you pray for your pastor? Are you praying for God's assistance, his encouragement, for God to enable John with ability, with success, deliverance from, protect, from temptation and protection? Are you praying for him as he labors in the word of God so that the Lord may make his preaching effectual? I strongly encourage you, and I encourage myself, spend some time, 
even um, spend some time Sunday as you prepare for the word, as you prepare to receive the word, praying for our brother as he prepares to give us the word of God. When we pray for our pastor, we are praying for ourselves as he is trying to feed us and lead us as God uh, says in his word. As the burdens carried by shepherds increase, so our prayers on their behalf must increase. Do you joyfully submit to our pastor? Even though we have authority as a congregation in these key matters of doctrine and membership and leaders and discipline, the elders have a job of teaching us how to use that authority. The elders' authority is to teach us how to use our authority and to use it biblically and to use it well. And as we said, the elders are like the steering wheel of a car. They guide the car. They have this God-given authority to steer the church according to the word of God. They lead. They exercise oversight. They feed and lead and protect the, ch- protect the flock, navigating the car with godly wisdom and gospel faithfulness. And so when they steer according to the word of God, we are to submit to them and obey them for they give an account for our souls. And, and when we agree, that's easy. But the real test of submission is not to acquiesce in agreement, but when we have a disagreement, are we going to be in submission to God's word? Do we disagree with, do we disagree with them because they're telling us to sin or because they are exposing our sin? In the first case, we need to be the emergency break, the emergency break to preserve the holiness and faithfulness of the church But when we are being steered according to the word of God, then we need to submit and obey those God has put in place over us. Trusting in God, that God who put leaders over us, ultimately our our trust is in the leader, but more than that, our trust is in God who gave us that leader. When the elders' leadership and the congregational governance are functioning properly, the church is built up. When the steering wheel and the emergency brake are working together, the church can grow and go forward to advance the kingdom of heaven. When God's household functions, so leaders governing, leaders leading in a God-honoring way as under-shepherds, and congregations lovingly submitting and growing and preserving holiness, then everyone being clothed in love for one another When this is what happens in the church, God is glorified, his kingdom is advanced. And I'm so thankful, brothers and sisters, that I can see ways in which God is carrying these things out in this this body. May God help us to be ever more conformed to this pattern in this church. Let's pray.